Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the German New Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Sell, and I am joined by my wonderful partner, Dr. Stephen Robinstock. Hello. And today we are going to be covering a topic. It's kind of our topic of the month, and we've mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast so far, and we've get, given examples, I know, of fibromyalgia and shoulder pain, but the topic is self-devaluation conflicts. So we are going to be going through understanding self-devaluation conflicts from a German New Medicine perspective talking through the scientific part, so what's happening on a cellular level when there is an active self-devaluation conflict, and the symptoms that are associated with the healing of these types of conflicts. And we're really excited to talk to you guys about this one today because it's what we found to be one of the most common types of conflicts that people uh, experience very regularly. I know that I've got a lot of experience with it. Um, Steve's got a lot of experience with it. Every single person that I've worked with has had some type of self-devaluation conflict active. And so because it's so applicable to most people, we wanted to do a really good treatment and really give you guys the big picture idea from the GNM perspective. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where if if you are willing to devalue yourself, right? Which is to say, if your you know psychology is arranged in such a way, if your beliefs about yourself, if your ways of relating to feedback and things that happen, and especially when things go wrong or some way that you don't want them to go, if that stuff is arranged in such a way that it's possible for you to devalue yourself in response to something, probably at some point, and, and possibly uh, on, on a number of occasions, you, you will devalue yourself just because life tends to serve us up more than ample opportunities to decide that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not attractive enough, we're not successful enough, don't have enough money, um, you know, we're not in good enough shape, we're not young enough, we're not old enough, we're not sexy enough, whatever it is. There's all this stuff going on. And I think it's increasingly the case with just social media and, and the, just the way life works now and the, the connectivity and everything and the tendency to compare. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of the best of other people, and there's a natural tendency to kind of compare that to our worst. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that in general, you know, one, I think human beings are social animals. We have always been social animals, or, you know, as long as we've been a species, we've been social animals. And so in that context, I think self-devaluation, that we're already predisposed just from a kind of ancient biological perspective. And then as that social element, right, you know, I mean, we lived out in the plains and the fields together, in packs of people, and over time we came together in larger towns and then cities. And, and But now we have social media. So now we have this virtual connection to people that in the past we would have never been connected to, numbers of people, um, people who make their whole careers looking pretty and looking successful on social media and putting it in your face as if that's the way they are, right? And then you compare that to yourself. And it's very, very easy, if you're not paying attention to what you're doing, to devalue yourself. And mm -hmm. then you've got stuff like your job. You've got the fact that there's, no matter who you are, whether you're into fitness or finances or whether you're just a really good mom or dad, whatever your craft is, whatever your thing is, where, whatever the, the stuff is that your self-concept comes from, there is an opportunity to find somebody else who appears to be doing better than you are doing. You know what I'm saying? That's true for everyone. That's, that's, that's true for the people that you might look at and devalue yourself in comparison to. It's true for them too. Um, and so that's why to me it's, it's, it's particularly important that we find some way 
of making the self-devaluation just a non-issue. Mm. You know, find find a way to get around it. Because a lot of the conflicts that we cover, they're things that you may or may not ever come into contact with. You, you may or may not ever experience a territorial conflict. You may or may not ever experience a, an extreme or severe loss conflict. But self-devaluation... Unless you, unless there's a specific and particular reason that you just don't experience those things, just say like, unless you just have a self-concept, you have a way of thinking about yourself and just relating to life that insulates you or bulletproofs you from that kind of a conflict, probably you're going to encounter it. And probably you're going to encounter it on a regular basis, or at least you're going to encounter opportunities. And so it's really important, I think, that we get good at declining opportunities to devalue ourselves. Yeah. So from a biological perspective, what does it look like for the cells of your body to be responding to a self-devaluation conflict? So this is you being in a state of feeling some in some form, not enough, like Steve said, not strong enough, not able, not capable, um, whatever it is, basically you're not up to the task is the message that's getting communicated to the tissue cells of your body. And the particular tissue cells will depend on the particular nature of the conflict. In general, though, it's the muscles, the ligaments, tendons, lymphatic system, blood vessels, except for the blood vessels of the heart and uh, the lymph system and the bones. And so it's basically the connective tissue, the stuff that gives our body structure, uprightness. Um, That's what's being affected when we have a self-devaluation conflict. And now each of the individual regions of the body, so the head and neck, that's an intellectual self-devaluation or possibly an injustice. Somebody wronged you. You felt like there was an unfair judgment against you. That'll affect the neck. We talked before about the shoulder being a relationship-related conflict, the, the wrists and the hands, a dexterity conflict, something having to do if you're you have a manual job, something where your hands are really important. So every single body region has a particular type of self-devaluation that will affect that area. And then there's also intensity of the devaluation. So the difference between, oh, just a, a light devaluation will affect lighter tissues, more superficial tissues. So that would be the connective tissue like the fascia, the uh, ligaments, the tendons, more moderate would affect the muscles, the lymph system, and then the severe, like the most severe types of self-devaluation conflicts affect the bones. And so during the conflict activity, so this is when you're in the state, this is when you're feeling bad, this is when the, you know, you were rejected and you took that to be a a sexual rejection um, or something along those lines and you're devaluing yourself um, perhaps in regards to your sexuality and Let's say it was somewhat, you know, mild to moderate. And so it's affecting the lymphatic tissue, your lymph glands in your groin area. And so what happens during the conflict is there is erosion of tissue. There's breakdown of whatever tissues, tissue type is involved, be it the bone, the muscle, the lymph, the blood vessel. And the purpose of this tissue breakdown is the body is preparing for a strengthening. This uh, particular category of um, biological programs, they're controlled from the cerebral medulla or the cerebral white matter. And what happens is during the conflict, it's preparing for the healing phase. Most other conflicts, the biological purpose, the biological meaning is fulfilled when the conflict is active. 
But for this category of biological conflicts, the biological meaning is fulfilled once the whole program's over. And so while it's active and while it's healing, those both of those times, it's not it hasn't fully completed its purpose. When the body when you get through the self-devaluation, your body restores tissue. So it's meant to make the the lymph vessel, the lymph gland bigger, make the bone bigger and stronger, make the muscle more robust, more able to handle whatever it is that you're dealing with. Because that's just how the body works. It's very practical in nature. If you're feeling weak, if you're feeling not good enough, not strong enough, not able, the body says, okay, it's time to reinforce. And the analogy that I like to give is if you're reinforcing a house, if you come to find out that the house that you're living in is not going to stand up to the first storm, it's very weak, you say, oh my goodness, this house is not strong enough, it's not going to make it, we need to reinforce it. And if you care about this house and you want it to last a long time and you care about its you know, structural integrity, you're not going to just board up the you know the walls and add extra bricks to the outside. You're going to get down into the foundation. You're going to take pieces away from the house first so that you can get in to the inner structure and then you can rebuild from the inside out. And so that's what's happening with this conflict. During the conflict, there's erosion of tissue. Once the healing begins, once the conflict has been resolved, the tissues are restored. And during the healing phase, during that restoration, that's when people experience pain. And so the pain um, can be quite intense during the healing phase. If you've ever had kind of mysterious neck, back, shoulder, knee, you know, pain in your body, it's no joke. But the reason is, is your body wants you to rest so that you can restore and heal that tissue. So that's kind of the, you know, the fast version of what happens um, on the cellular level in the tissues during the biological program activity. If you want a more detailed look at this, uh, watch the YouTube video on this particular topic so you can kind of get all of the details. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things of interest there. One of them is, I I just keep coming back to this whole idea, like why is the body doing this? You know what I'm saying? Like, so if you're new to G&M and you're wondering like, okay, so what's the deal here? I mean, you know, it makes metaphorical sense. I mean, there's this, you know, it's a whole... I devalued myself, and so I needed—I wasn't enough, and so my body went to make more. But it's like scientifically, why does this happen? What, you know, from a biological perspective or an evolutionary perspective, why does this make sense? You know what I'm saying? That was like one of the things for me, and when we were in school, was that really stuck with me. Um, one of our last teachers who taught research explained that in order for a theory or an idea or something like that to really be put forward, there have to be these. Um, biologically plausible mechanisms, which say we have to know, we have to be able to point to specific things and say, you know, this is happening in this way, and this is operating through this function, and these things that we've already demonstrated to exist, you know. And so, I think that for me, one of the things with with German new medicine is, is to remember that there's the you you experience yourself to be, the ego, the I, the the center of consciousness that sits back behind the eyeballs, you know, that is peering out from outside. There's that part of us, that subjective experience. But there's more to us than that, right? There's also our physical body. There's also, I mean, ancient structures that we don't really think about. There's, for example, the part of you that beats your heart 100,000 times a day. If you're like me, if you're like most people, you probably don't actively or consciously identify with the part of your mind or your body that regulates your heart. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you don't, oh yeah, that I know about that part, or oh, that's me. You know, that it just sort of happens. And so, one of the things for me in, in terms of just wrapping my mind around German new medicine, which has been, I mean, it's kind of a big picture thing, but it's helped a lot with the specific applications because it's made it so much more credible to me, is understanding that 
for every subjective emotional experience that I have, whether it's anger or frustration or feelings of, of being inadequate or not enough or fear or pretty much anything you can think of, there's an emotional meaning to that experience, right? That's where we're typically plugged into it. That's how we experience it, right? Because, you know, it, it's an emotion. It's a feeling. It's me. I am feeling this way. But there are other aspects or there are other ways in which that feeling is significant. So at the same time that I'm feeling that thing at an emotional or a psychological level, that feeling is a manifestation of something that's going on globally within the organism, right? So there's a biological equivalent for these feelings that I'm having. And this is especially true in the instance of like conflicts, which is that shocking instance where something happens that catches you off guard in particular and it's a shock to your nervous system. It's like, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, I mean, if you've ever walked in on something that you didn't expect or particularly want to walk in on or received a phone call that you were, you know, you thought everything was fine and you found out suddenly things weren't, that shocking sensation, um, that feeling is not confined to your subjective experience. There are, there's a biological equivalent. And so if I'm feeling not good enough, or if I'm finding out, for example, that, I don't know, I want a sports team and they're looking to replace me, or I you know, perform poorly on some kind of a performance review at my job or something like that, and I feel down about that, I feel not good enough about that, if I feel like I've let my spouse or my child down or something like this, if I feel like I'm not smart enough to figure out some challenge or problem, there's the feeling, the subjective sensation, the emotion. But there's a biolog biological kind of translation of that, too. So as I, or the me that I'm experiencing myself to be, feels that feeling and thinks about how it relates to this, you know, psychological thing. I've got this problem going on in my life, right? My, my job's not working out the way I want it to. There's a biological significance there, too. There's, there's stuff going on at the biological level. And I think just learning to experience, relate to, interpret your subjective personal experience as a part of the greater kind of organismic ecology of who you are as an animal, as an organism, is really, really useful. And so if there's some way that you are feeling, right, emotionally, there's stuff going on in your body that is kind of an approximation or, or a translation of that same thing. There's nothing happens in isolation. There's nothing, there's, nothing happens in your experience that doesn't have some kind of a biological equivalent going on. And I think just kind of recognizing that and, and kind of learning to integrate my the, the me I kind of sense myself to be and, and the whole me as an organism has been a really useful thing. The other thing you said that's really interesting was the whole thing about how the biological purpose or the significance of self-devaluation conflicts is kind of made manifest or is evident during the healing phase, right? Well, once it's already completed. Because mm -hmm. during the healing phase, that's when you're in pain. That's when the, the, the tissue is being restored. You, you, know, you don't feel like there's anything good going on during that time. That's mm -hmm. when you think that you have a problem. Um, and then once the program is completed, that is when the biological meaning is manifested. Right. So, so it manifests at the at the end of the at thing the end of the than, program. rather than during it. Yes. And that's kind of a different thing. That's unusual. Mm -hmm. And there's another sense, right, in which self-evaluation conflicts are a little bit unusual or different from other ones, which is that depending on who you ask, there are different schools of thought about this, but that sometimes a self-evaluation conflict doesn't have to be a moment in time. It doesn't have to be that shock necessarily, right, that it's possible that this is kind of like a slow burning kind of thing where, and I mean, I think probably you can relate to this if, if, you, if you experience like one rejection 
maybe it's shocking. You know, if you're maybe ask somebody to go out with you or go out for a job or try to start a business or something like that. Um, I think because I think a rejection a lot of times failure feels like a rejection, even if it's not a person. Like if you try to start a business and it doesn't work out, that can almost feel like the world or the market or people or mm. you know rejecting you in a sense. Um, you can have a single instance of it and perhaps not necessarily experience a conflict, but then it happens again and again and again and again. And maybe each individual instance of that was kind of sub-threshold. It mm-hmm. didn't necessarily activate a conflict, but there might be a moment in time. And probably in this case, it probably is a moment in time where those things add up and, and suddenly it means something that it didn't mean before. Mm-hmm. So self-devaluation is really interesting because it seems to kind of, the rules don't seem to totally apply to it in the way that it does the other ones, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that's kind of neat. And I, you mentioned intellectual self-evaluation, which is really kind of interesting, the head and the neck. And I, I think it's interesting because I was just writing about all the different ones, um, and there's very specific things. So, for example, intellectual is a little bit different than like an injustice, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? is a little bit different than maybe a moral. And the interesting thing to me is that, that, that that's not really the case for a lot of other conflicts, right? So the, 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 the self-devaluations that affect the head and the face area, the tissues of the head, face, and the neck, um, they're, they're, there's a lot more nuance to those than to the other ones. And I thought, gosh, that's really interesting. If you think about, again, the fact that human beings are social creatures, for one thing, and, one, and so that means communication is really important. And one of our main primary means of communicating with other people is via our facial expression. I mean, if you think about your sense of self and your concept of yourself, Probably the, the, the image that you have of your face or the way that you look is probably pretty important for that, for better or for worse, depending on how you feel about that. Um, it probably other people, when they think about you, you know, the way your face looks is an important part of their image of you or of their concept of you. And so I thought it was really interesting that it was so much more nuanced. And also, if you think about, too, like, what, like think about the traits that you most closely associate with your self-concept intelligence or ability or your personal character or your honesty or all these different things. Um, it, in, in a self-devaluation can occur in any of those areas. It's interesting that there are so many that affect this area that's kind of the center of our consciousness. I mean, mm-hmm. for most people, their primary center of consciousness isn't their left foot. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's somewhere in their head. That's where they kind of experience themselves as existing. And it's interesting that there are so many, like, for example, the whole losing face thing. Mm -hmm. Like, if you feel like, for example, I mean, I guess justly or unjustly, right? If someone, you know, tries to assassinate your character or to defame you, or if something happens that causes you to lose face in the kind of metaphorical sense that your body literally, you know, responds to that with your actual literal physical face. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that seems kind of out there until you think about the fact that, like, okay, hang on a second, though. One, why linguistically do we use the words lose face like why does that have a meaning to us why do we know what that means well it's probably because it relates in some way to an experience that we have of our face being really important mm-hmm. you know and important um and what would it what would it mean to lose face so what would mean that you lost your ability to communicate with other people mm-hmm. or you would lose your ability to maybe be trusted by other people to be believed by them and if you lose your face and, you know, literally or metaphorically in, a, in an environment in which your face is really important for communicating, you've lost your ability really to function with other people mm-hmm. effectively. And so I just thought that's kind of a really cool example of how deep and nuanced the stuff is and also how just believable and convincing it is as you sort of explore your own sensation. That was a big thing for me is that I, the, the theory and the idea of GNM is interesting. But it's really interesting when you start looking for personal experiences that kind of line up with it 
and you're like, oh, you know what? Huh, that's interesting. That is kind of how I, as an organism, experience. I kind of take it for granted because it's so, it seems so obvious. But, oh, huh, that's interesting. And when I was really embarrassed or when I really felt like someone was, was, was basically destroying my character, um, I remember that experience. And, yeah, that makes sense that that would be kind of like the biological equivalent that would be running alongside that really kind of traumatic experience I was having. Yeah, and so every kind of devaluation and you know something that you hold as important let's say some kind of sports endeavor because there's a lot like the lower body especially I mean I guess the you know the elbows like tennis elbow stuff and using the hands but a lot of like athletic endeavors um, are affecting the the femur the knee the shins the ankles the feet um, recently and these are things that you just kind of observe and you put together and you like watch these people's life stories pretty much on Facebook you see what they're up to I saw there's a guy um, who a couple months ago I, I don't remember exactly how long ago he was ready to do some type of triathlon and I don't know if he didn't finish or something happened where he didn't totally finish the race or you know I don't know if he got injured during the race but then a couple of months later he ruptured his Achilles hmm. tendon. And so the thing there is, well, you know, that's really interesting. Sure, it could have just been a, you know, an injury, but why does the injury happen? What predisposes someone to rupture an Achilles? Because during the conflict, when the, the conflict is active, there is active erosion of the tissue. And so not being able to finish a race, that is very easy to understand how you could have some kind of, you know, self-devaluation regarding your ability to run, walk, complete whatever this, this endeavor is that you wanted to do. And so mm -hmm. while you're devaluing, your Achilles tendon is becoming weaker, mm -hmm. you know, because that's what happens is the tissue, it, it becomes weaker because it's preparing for this restoration phase. It's making this space. But during that phase, especially if you're unaware of it, you become more likely to have a rupture, you know, something like... um. I think this one's really interesting about feeling overburdened or like under a lot of pressure uh, affects the tissues of the abdomen. So like the, the muscles, the fascia become weaker, thinner, and then you bend over to pick something up or you're doing a workout and then you have like a, you know, an umbilical herniation or something along those lines. So the tissue, when it becomes weak, it predisposes you to things that just seem like just an injury. Mm. But it's like, okay, well, it could be just an injury, but why, why did it happen? Why did mm. it happen on that foot and not the other? Mm -hmm. What were the specifics of that? And so I thought that that was kind of an interesting connection that you can just see just by observing people, looking what's what, what's going on with them. Kind of reminds me of the uh, the epidemic of Achilles tendon ruptures in CrossFit gyms. I mean, mm. it's something I kind of I don't have a lot of personal experience with that, but I've heard that like that's one of the things that happens. And you know, one are, are people coming in there and they're deconditioned, and then they're suddenly intensely working out and doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it, but I think I think it's a very competitive environment too. It's a culture, yeah. And so you get involved in that culture and that pushing really hard and all that stuff. And I mean, you, you can understand how. It, and again, it doesn't to say that you know it's CrossFit's fault, but the thing is, if you're in a competitive culture like that and you have a person, as the vast majority of of people are to some degree or another, who who tend to be scanning for the ways in which they might not be up to snuff, they might not be good enough, they might, you know, better get better here, oh, I'm not performing well enough, oh, God, I'm too old, or, you know, so-and-so is doing so much better than me. You know, the, the, the temptation to devalue yourself, to experience and perceive yourself as somehow not sufficient. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm looking forward to getting better at this. That's not a self-devaluation. I'm talking about kind of an existential deficiency. Right here, right now, I'm not good enough, and it's a big problem. Oh, is there something wrong with me? Oh, gosh, is there something the matter with me? That's the kind of thing. Oh, is this? Is, what's that little twinge? Oh God, is that little twinge a sign? I've, I know I've, I've experienced that. Growing up, 
you know, one of my grandmothers had some knee problems and my dad had some knee problems. And I remember distinctly on a number of occasions discussions about knee problems coming up. And, well, you know, the knees are problems and all this different stuff. And And, like, it's such an interesting thing to observe is, like, if I were to have just the slightest twinge in my knee, doing a stretch or moving around. I'm talking about like college age, you know, I'm 18, you know, 22 years old. I'm talking about, um, I, that I would remember those things that she said and, and it would be so easy in those situations too. And I even remember kind of feeling the opportunity to devalue myself. Oh, there it is. You know what I'm saying? There's, yeah, I guess they were right about that. Um, and that's just a kind of an example of how easy that really is to do. And I think that like becoming sensitive to those experiences, becoming sensitive to those perceptions of yourself. And I mean, it's, it's interesting too, like you said, with the, the whole supporting thing. Like if you're, and this is really funny too, like one of the, the people that I follow, you know, Pavel with, with the exercises and like if you're say putting a heavy weight overhead, one of the things he teaches is like, you know, if you condition your abdomen or if you, pre, you we call it pressurize, where basically you tense your abs like you're bracing for a punch and you push air into your stomach so that you have a sturdy place that you can press from, um, that, that you're much safer and that you are able to press a lot heavier. And okay, so what, what's the relevance to this here? Well, basically, it's what, what, what the essential thing is that your abdomen is a really important area for stabilizing in order to support a load. And so what you're talking about here with the erosion of abdominal tissue, if you feel like you're under a lot of pressure, I mean, even like you have to listen and pay attention to that. When it, why do we call it under a lot of pressure when somebody in a suit at a job says to us, you need to put these numbers in this order by this date or you'll lose your job? There's no physical pressure there. Mm. And yet we use the word pressure and we experience it as a kind of psychic pressure. It's like literally you're being compressed by something. I mean, when somebody has like a breakdown, it's but that sensation of psychic pressure. I mean, you know, if you compress someone's body past a certain uh, you know point, they just get physical damage. If you compress their psyche, they just freak out. You know what I'm saying? There's, but there's no like there's no physical breaking point for the non-physical mind. Mm. There, there's just sort of a breakdown. And I think it's really interesting that we talk in that way and we say I'm not enough. You know what I'm saying? And it's like enough. It's such a physical kind of term. Oh, you don't have enough money. You don't have enough coins. Oh. This doesn't, you know, weigh enough to move this over. You know, all these different things. But when, when we, when we, these non-physical kind of beings, or at least our experience or our consciousness is, feels pretty non-physical, start talking about enough. I mean, we're, we're talking in physical terms. We're so preoccupied with that. And I think that recognizing the, the degree to which subjective experience kind of tracks physical reality uh, makes it a lot easier to understand how subjective experience can affect the physical reality of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the language that you use. Pay attention to those things. You know, I, I'm not getting enough support and supports the lumbar spine, right? Mm-hmm. And the number of people who have low back pain. Now, are people sitting a lot? Well, sure. Um, that And is that good for your lumbar spine? Probably not. Being sedentary is not the best thing for your body. But a lot of people are sedentary without having problems. This right. is you point out, right? Um, and, you know, could there be just biomechanical explanations for that? Sure. But a lot of people uh, don't have lumbar problems, low back problems, right up until they do. Mm. And the interesting thing about that is, okay, so what about the subjective experience there? You know what I'm saying? What, what's, what's more likely to cause the problem? Is it just kind of like low-key microtrauma wear and tear? Or, I mean, you can understand, too, how someone like, like a, I don't know, an orthopedic doctor or something like that, if, if, if you're not considering subjective experience at all, well, then you're going to look around and you're going to say, well, it's probably the chair. It's probably the shoes. It's probably the sitting. It's probably your weight. It's probably this. And it's probably that. 
And that's a nice thing to tell you it's your weight, and then you get a self-devaluation conflict related to that, right? You know, but if you're totally neglecting the person's subjective experience, you're going to look in that person's physical environment for explanations, and you're gonna, you're not even going to look in the drawer labeled subjective experience, and so you're not even going to notice or know. You'll never even know if that person was feeling unsupported or if they were feeling in some way like they were being let down by somebody that they depended upon. You would never even know this thing, you know. Um, and and so I think being aware of that is really important. And I just keep everyone, anytime we talk about this, I, I kind of harp on this, but it's it, it's amazing to me that all of this seemed as far-fetched as it did when I first heard about right. it. Right. <laughs> given, like, but I think it's, I think that we really are conditioned to think about our consciousness, our experience, our subjectiveness, our emotions as almost being kind of sealed in a Ziploc bag. You know, and that Ziploc bag is sitting inside this body, but it has no influence on the body. And you've got, you know, your wishy-washy, subjective, touchy-feely experience, you know, and then you've got your physical body. And it's like if you're having an emotional problem, okay, well, we can work on that, but there's no relationship to the physical body, which is a real problem. Oh, you're, you know, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling unworthy or I'm feeling not good enough for my sport. Oh, who cares? Suck it up. Oh, I have knee pain. Oh, go to the doctor. You know what I mean? There's this mm. kind of interesting disparity there. And I think that learning... Uh, learning to kind of just treat yourself as as an, an ecological whole, you know, and to think in those terms, and also just in general to become more sensitive to your experience um, is an immensely valuable thing. Uh, become more aware of how you're perceiving yourself, the world, and other people. And, I mean, you know, the consequences of all this stuff, and this is like where the Ever Better Thought technology stuff comes in, like a lot of the things we do in Resolve, is, is, is like, is this about the physical connection that is posited by German New Medicine? Absolutely. But it's not confined to the physical body, right? This, this, it, your subjective experience is influencing the results that you're getting in every aspect of your physical world, right? The world of your body, the world beyond your body, the world of your relationships, the world of your finances, your performance. I mean, like literally how you feel about your intelligence affects how intelligent you are, how, what you perceive about the world, you know, uh, determines Literally, it determines the world with which you are interacting, right? And the manner in which you interact with the world determines the type of world that reveals itself to you. And so it's this kind of like stepwise thing where, you know, the, the, the G&M thing to me is just a specific iteration of a general principle, right? It's a very specific, incredibly well kind of researched and documented um, model for understanding how basically like your subjective experience, your self-concept, creates your reality. And, and, and then G&M is like, oh, specifically, here are the mechanisms by which your subjective experience creates the reality of your physical health or your symptoms that are going on and kind of what's happening in your body. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. And it's such a major paradigm shift because especially for me being a chiropractor, like being in full-time practice, being fully immersed in you know, in this uh, this healthcare paradigm, which is already radically different from conventional medicine, you know, regarding the nervous system and paying attention to nutrition. And we, we paid attention to mindset only in the most general sense, only in the most, oh, stressed, not stressed, right. not stressed is good, stressed is bad, but not in this specific biological sense. And um, I think back to all of the patients that I had with mystery pain, with no injury, with no nothing that just, you know, this hurts, that hurts, doc, what do, what do I do? And I would say, you know, we'd go through the list of right. sitting, sleeping, you know, this, did you twit, did, did you, you know, we go through all of like the physical things that could have possibly happened. And, um, you know, they're never satisfied because they still have pain there, you know, there's never a really good answer. You do your best to try to explain it. 
But um, since I've kind of gone back in the last couple of years to do coverage work in offices, it's like, oh, my goodness, I need to talk to these people about, okay, well, what's going on? Your knee hurts. Well, did you have, you know what I mean? But it's it's in that model even, they've been so programmed to look at physical things that yeah. it's kind of hard to break out of that. It's like, oh, what are you, my psychiatrist? Like- well, a lot, and, a lot of, and a lot of what went on for, I mean, and I think it's probably pretty normal from my perspective, a lot of what chiropractors mean by mindset. I mean, pretty much it's, convince the person to really value chiropractic it's to it's to it's to make their make it so that they're very cognizant of how important chiropractic is that's the key shift right i mean people talk about mindset but that was the main concern and it's not that i mean that's not that that's not understandable it's just that there's a lot of other things going on like you can convert a person or you can convince a person of the value of chiropractic i mean we both right we we were both kind of pretty loyal in that we um, we stick with chiropractic stuff. We use it, you know, but there's a lot of other things going on too. And I think that's the thing to kind of recognize. And really, truly, like when we were in practice and we, we I had the opportunity to observe, they weren't my patients, but they were, you know, people who were in practice and I, I worked with them like as an intern and stuff like that. Um, there were people who had phenomenal results and there were people who had uh, kind of uh, results, and there were people who had uh, not great results. There were people who, who did not get the same quality of change as everyone else. And the interesting thing about a lot of these offices is that they're very inspirational places to be. You know, if, if you go there and you hear these messages and it's empowering and there's a wonderful community that springs up, I'm not saying that this is the only thing that these offices do, but I think that it's totally uh, imaginable that a lot of conflicts resolve as a result. I mean, and, you know, chiropractic offices are different, right? There's different ones. The, the ones that we tended to, to be involved with were very um, dynamic. They were very community oriented. It became like a little, like a hub socially because there was, there was fitness stuff going on. There was exercise stuff going on. There were mindset workshops that were going on. Patients became friends with each other. Patients became friends with the doctor. There were all sorts of really nice things. You had a workshop to go to every week. There was this really great, you know, like then you go out and have lunch and learn and all this different stuff together. And it was this amazing space where a lot of really positive, wonderful things were happening. And so you can imagine someone comes in and they're devaluing themselves. And then all of a sudden they're a part of something very important or they're being told that they're very important. They're being told that they can heal. They're being told that, you know, they matter. They're getting a lot of personal attention and all this different stuff. So there are all sorts of ways in which, you know, I don't think you have to know you're doing, quote, doing G&M to be doing it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you, you know, you don't have to understand what, what you don't have to know what you're doing in order to be doing that thing. It's possible, you know, and so if, I think a lot of chiropractic patients who do benefit, they were the ones that were feeling pretty good. They were the ones that, I mean, emotionally, they were coming in, they were engaging, they were being dynamic, um, they were into it. And I think that that's a huge thing. And, I, and in my mind, that doesn't, it's not like an offsetting of the value. That's like, no, no, see, you're treating the ecology of the person there. It's just you were doing good things without knowing what you were doing. And I think the the value for me of, of GNM is is that it become when you understand what you're doing, you can systematize it a little bit more. Do it a lot better, yeah. And you can and, and you can say, yeah, specifically, instead of just kind of going out there and say and happening, right, in the course of doing whatever you're doing to render the right word or say the right word at the right time and, and kind of help someone feel a little better or resolve something that had going on, you can actually be sensitive to like, okay, what is this person's symptoms or what are my symptoms telling me? about what's going on. And then you can do really targeted interventions to start addressing that stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're a chiropractor, do the chiropractic too, because it's yeah. great, you know? 
And I think the other side of that, though, like while there were a lot of people that got so much benefit mm-hmm. just from being in the environment, there's a lot of in the environment that also can predispose a person to more self-devaluation. Yeah. And this is, I find, very similar to the dentist's office <laughs> because, um, you know, their, their whole um, strategy is to show you what's wrong with you take x-rays of your teeth, take x-rays of your spine, um, and then sit you down in a room in a serious atmosphere and point out to you all of the things that are really so drastically wrong with your spine, with your teeth, and what you need to do right away as soon as possible. You better do this thing or else all these really bad things are going to happen. And so that that in and of itself being told, you have a, you know, a reverse curve in your neck, your tooth, is, you know, you need a root canal, you need all of this, that in and of itself can can induce a person to say, oh no, I'm not enough. This mm-hmm. is bad. There's something wrong with my back. You know, this is terrible and I don't have enough money to pay for that. You know what I mean? And that can, that cycle, especially again, not every person, none of this is every person. All of this is individual people with individual perceptions and experiences, as is everything in GM. It's all unique to the person. And so, you know, where some person could be, oh, okay, well, I know what I need to do about this now. They feel super empowered. They feel super encouraged. They're happy to be in this place. They, they feel like they're doing exactly the right thing. They get better, you know, in two weeks. They think it's the best thing they've ever done. They're patients for life. I mean, that happens very frequently. But then there's also the people who end up feeling terrible about themselves, about their posture, about their spine, about their job, about everything, about sitting at their desk. They, you know, and so every time they're looking at their phone, they feel like they're literally strangling their their, their brainstem. They don't don't, don't stop looking at their phone. They just feel bad while they do it, right? Exactly. And that's like one of those rules is this idea that like the, the person who's responsible for a conflict is the person who has the conflict you know I mean ultimately because they're really the only one that can do anything about it mm-hmm. um, and I think that, that I think that, I mean I, I understand what it's like to be on the other end of that thing right so as a chiropractor is that you feel like no one understands how important the spine is and you feel like the people are paying attention to a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't matter and literally you're the only person in the world to around tell them how important their spine is and I'm sure as a dentist too I mean you know that like people come in and they just don't really take good care of their teeth and it's like you have them for what, 25, 30, 35 minutes, and you were going to try to pound into them six months worth of, listen, this is really super important. Um, that's kind of the hazard of what happens when you're working on a body part and not working with a person. I mean, even yes. working even working with a whole body is not enough. I mean, to be holistic in the sense like I'm going to look at your whole body is not sufficient because there's a mind in there. There's a, there's a, there's a, there is a, a, a locus of consciousness that does not experience itself as being a body. It experiences itself as having a body. And when you talk about what's going wrong with that body or how that body's not being kept up, it's that locus of consciousness. It's that ego who says, oh, God, I got to do this and all this isn't working and all this different stuff. And to me, my communication with people has changed a lot when I realize that I and, you know, someone could easily say, well, it's true. You do need to brush your teeth. Well, it's true. You do need to take better care of your spine. I would say, yeah, that's absolutely you're correct about that. However, you have to, you know, it's like kind of like the meaning communication is the response that it gets. You know what I'm saying? And. You have to communicate, or I, I, I try to communicate with people in a way that takes into account the fact that they're probably, probably calibrated to devalue themselves. They're probably already kind of stressed, or they probably already have good strategies for feeling bad about themselves. And probably, they have probably pretty good strategies for feeling bad about something they're doing without ever changing what they're doing. And it's interesting when you kind of start communicating with people in that way, you're a little more conscious about it, you know what I mean, on the one hand. But on the other hand, you start to get through to them in an interesting way because I think so many people 
are used to being talked at or talked about. And when you start talking to a person, and you start talking to the whole person, and you say to them, listen, I understand that what I'm about to say to you is probably going to stress you out. I know this is just one more thing, but it's really important not only that you do these certain things, not just that you come to this office, not just that you eat this food, not just that you speak to your spouse this way, not that way, not just that you brush your teeth, whatever, right? It's also really important that you manage your experience too. Mm -hmm. And you have to say it more than once because the people have this tendency to translate everything that a person asks them to do or suggests that they do into behaviors. All right, what's this person telling me I should do physically? Mm. And we say, no, 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 no. Before that, see, there's there's an experience. There's something called what it's like to be you. And no one's ever talked to you about that before. And so it's normal that you wouldn't, you know, necessarily hear what I'm saying, even if you're listening, you know. Um, but there's something called what it's like to be you. There's this subjective experience that exists from one moment to the next. And what we're talking about is that it's really important that you train yourself to be conscious of and sensitive to what the quality of that experience is, because that's the most important thing ever. Not because it leads to any specific sequence of behaviors. Mm -hmm. I don't want you feeling better because when you feel better, you'll be more likely to brush your teeth and go to the chiropractor. I want you to feel better because feeling better is in and of itself a worthy goal. And in fact, it's in, in and of itself, it's an essential health objective. It's an essential component of your well-being and not like in some kind of like wishy-washy way. This is the thing for me about GNM that's so great is that, you know, I mean, because we, we were in school, right? Okay, the spine's really important. Here's the body. Here's all this stuff about the body and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, mental wellness is really important too. Spiritual well-being is really important too. Okay, well, we got three and a half hours of learning about arteries. And then we got at the end of that a little addendum that said, by the way, your mindset really matters a lot too. German New Medicine makes such a direct connection between those things that it becomes impossible to make the experience just kind of like a perfunctory add-on at the end. Make sure you do this, 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 and this for your body. And oh, by the way, go ahead and think happy thoughts too. It's like, right. no, 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 no. Like, no, see, you don't, it, there, there, there's a one-to-one relationship there and that, and that there are specific undulations or there are specific aspects of your experience that will manifest in your body in, in, in specific ways. And oh, here's the the anatomical or the physiological or the embryological reasons that a self-devaluation conflict occurs here. This is the, the you know, an intellectual self-devaluation conflict happens and affects the tissues of the, the head, the face, and the neck. Why is that? Well, one, think about it. I mean, metaphorically, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And the fact that it makes sense to you means something because, you know, it's that, that's to say it's making sense to an organism. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, it relates to my, what does it mean to make sense? It means it's consistent with your experience. Or it's like, mm. oh, well, I can see where that would be true. Or, oh, that feels right to me. Or, oh, yeah, I kind of hear what you're saying. You know, um, and on the other hand, there are very specific physical embryological connections, which is to say that, like, the, there's a part of your brain that contributes to you feeling the way that you do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we haven't necessarily, there's not like a single point of, uh, that like houses consciousness in the brain, but there are, the, the brain has an anatomy and, and, and certain aspects of that anatomy, certain parts of the brain are really important or they play a role in coordinating or giving rise to certain experiences that we have. I think that's a fairly uncontroversial statement. And those parts of the brain are derived from tissues um, from which parts of your physical body are derived too. And GNM is saying, oh, look, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're feeling this way or you're experiencing yourself in this way. And, oh, there's changes going on in this area of the body. Well, look at this little embryological map. So there are connections there. Isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Is it surprising? Well, only until you think about it. Only until you think about it. Once you think about it, it's like, you know, I mean, thinking bad feeling thoughts, thinking that you're not good enough. Like if, if you were to imagine 
that a thought had a weight to it, a certain weight. You know, different stuff weighs different amounts. You know, I've got some kettlebells downstairs, and like some of them weigh more than others. Some of them are like, you know, 52 pounds. Some of them are 18 pounds. Um, different thoughts. Imagine that they weigh different things. What are thoughts of not being good enough? What are thoughts of having let down your child or, you know, or your parent or your spouse or, or of being too old or of having missed the boat or of being stupid? I mean, the thought of being stupid is an immensely heavy thought. Like, it feels physically heavy. If you think that thought, there's not a part of your body that doesn't... Are you more or less likely to get up and run and get up and jump around and have fun and all this different stuff? You feel burdened. Do you know what I'm mm. saying? And isn't it interesting that you are... I mean, and the funny thing about this, too, is that we know there are people, like in Africa, right, that, that put these amazing water container, a vessel for water, and they stack it on their head, and they carry it, you know, a long distances. Um, it's not surprising that there would be tissue changes to the head and the neck there. I mean, it just kind of makes sense. I bet that probably the bone density is increased there. I bet that there's some interesting stuff, interesting differences among that population, people who do that all the time, compared to people who never put anything on their head heavier than the hat, right? Um, but it seems strange to us that thinking thoughts, you know what I'm saying? Just, there's, that there's a level of, of your organism at which there's just not a difference between an emotional feeling and a physical feeling. And that if your body responds to, like if you're lifting weights, you know what I'm saying? Like let's say you're doing like arm curls and you're doing enough that you're trying to get that burn. You're trying to get that feeling that, that, that you know, oh, this is, this is getting tough. That's a physical feeling. And you have an innate understanding that your body is responding to that. Hopefully it's becoming muscly, right? That's what you want. You'd be, basically your body's changing in response to a physical feeling. All you have to do to understand GNM is to is to get the fact that your body responds to emotional feelings too. It's not that hard. I mean, when you think about it like that, it's like, oh, that makes sense. I mean, you know, intuitively, if I'm if I'm lifting a weight and I'm, my body is is feeling some way in response to that physically, I'm kind of I don't even think it. I just know it's true that my body's responding physically. That physical sensation has you know a, a physical change associated with it. Emotional sensations are the same way, and in fact, they actually mirror pretty closely. Um, the area or you feel emotionally, probably there's something going on in that area. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. So a couple other examples that I just thought were interesting to include. There was a young guy that I've been talking with and he uh, had lymphoma. And the lymphoma happened after he got in trouble. I think he got arrested or something really, you know, something that was horribly embarrassing to him in mm -hmm. front of his family mm -hmm. where, you know, he got in trouble with the law and it was like a big, a big deal. It was like just a humiliation of mm -hmm. him kind of overall. Kind of out of character too, like not, you know. Yeah, unexpected. Yeah. The family was shocked, you know, and it was a really upsetting experience. And so, you know, in the months after that, he developed lymphoma. And luckily, he, he found GNM along the way um, because, you know, it's so easy to get a diagnosis and to then devalue yourself over the diagnosis, which it, it's such a paradox because the, um, the presence of lymphoma sy symptoms, so swollen lymph nodes all over your body, um, and, you know, you're exhausted and you've got all of these symptoms, and then you go and you get a diagnosis of lymphoma, and if you don't know the process, if you don't understand the biological laws, you then devalue yourself over something that is a devaluation in healing already. And so it's an event just like the first one, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you get, you get arrested and it's like, man, I've really done wrong here. And I think that when sometimes when people become ill in, in some, especially in some profound way, it's going to be really expensive or it's going to be really time consuming or it's going to interfere with their doing the things that are important to their self-concept, that it may potentially be life threatening, that it's like not I've done something wrong. It's like I am something wrong. Like mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, like I, you know, I'm fundamentally 
like, oh shit, this is bad. Like, you know what I'm saying? That sensation, I don't think that people think it rationally for the most part, but there's a big difference in how we experience things and how we 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 talk about them. You know what I'm saying? Or mm-hmm. how we're, it's like a lot of things, a lot of feelings that we have, like, oh, I'm not good enough because I've got this illness or something like that. We, we don't talk about it because it doesn't make intellectual sense to us, but it might make a lot of experiential sense to us. We may be experiencing that that stuff is true. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that the, the diagnosis very often, it's no different. I mean, the organism experiences it in the exact same way that it experienced whatever triggered the biological program that gave rise to the symptoms that led to the diagnosis in the first place. And it just keeps going and going and going, unless, of course, you are aware, like you said, and conscious of all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, I mean, when you're aware, this is the, this is the, the classic thing that awareness really does create that choice. You, you then have a choice about how you're going to respond to this stuff. And, and, this, and this means, like, as for you listening to this, it means you have a choice about how to respond to any kind of symptoms you've got going on right now. You've got a choice moving forward about how you respond to opportunities to devalue yourself to the degree that you are aware in the moment that the opportunity to devalue yourself or not arises. You know, if you're aware of it, you have a conscious choice about whether you're going to do it or not. Um, you have a choice about how you're going to relate to your personal history, the things that you're going to decide that it means, all that different stuff. And that's like kind of the cool thing here is that basically and there's a sense in which like the reason that all of this stuff happens is because our, our nervous system has gotten so complex and sensitive that we pick up on all this stuff and freak out about it and send messages to our body saying whoa 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 we got to do something you know but we've reached a point now where we're also smart enough or you know someone was smart enough to, to come up with GNM Dr. Hammer figured this stuff out he, that's a nervous system do you know what I'm saying that's that's a you know and he actually had a personal experience with this stuff too right so before he was conscious of all of this stuff, he was a victim of this kind of thing. And, and then he just sort of sorted this thing out, figured it out. And that's the cool thing to me is that we can use the same apparatus that's getting us into trouble to get us out of trouble. Mm-hmm. The same nervous system that detects danger where perhaps there isn't any can also learn how to not freak out about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it can learn to really deliberately create experiences that one, just enhance your quality of life. That's my big thing, that improve what it's like to be you. And that two, stop triggering your body to initiate these biological special programs that manifest in what modern medicine refers to as illness. And that's just kind of a neat thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think that I think that like the, the GNM thing, it, it, it's not even just a healing modality. It, it really kind of logically points in the direction of kind of a way of life. It points in the direction, I think, of the things that we were doing way before we even knew about GNM with awareness and with conscious choice and with deliberately creating your experience and with working on your perception and just generally building that really strong self-concept. Um, I think it's really neat that we had the opportunity to kind of like figure out this stuff and then come across this guy who had figured out all this really cool stuff and then turn around and apply some of the things that we had understood and to kind of the practical application of like, okay, fine, my, my, my neck pain is due to a self-devaluation conflict. Well, what the hell do I do about that now? That's great to know, but self-deval- whatever, whatever I'm doing in my mind that you have called self-devaluation is so much a part of who I am and it's mm. so much a part of what I've done my whole life. It's so natural to me at this point. I, it's not just like, oh, stop doing that. It's not like, oh, your hand's hurting because it's on the hot burner. Take your hand off. It's stuff that you don't even know you're doing, you know what I'm saying? Because it's been running on unconscious automatic for so long. And I think that's like really where we come in here is in giving people the ability to organize their experience 
and learn to label these things and learn to become conscious of them, to understand them intellectually and also to, to develop the skill of seeing this stuff happen in real time, like mm -hmm. self-devaluation. What does that look like for you? When you know what it looks like for you, you then know how not to do it. You know, for you, it, might, it might look like old belief about not being good enough, noticing things going wrong or things that could go wrong. When they do go wrong, it means assigning a meaning to the fact that they went wrong. It says, oh, this means that I'm actually not good enough after all. This means that the whole thing's ruined. This means that I screwed it up. You know, when and if you're assigning those meanings outside of awareness, you don't even know you're doing them. It just happens. And then you're just stuck with that experience of devaluation. But when you see what it's made out of, you can decide whether or not you're going to make that experience. And, you know, when you decide consciously about that, you you, you choose, you decide in a way that serves you. Yeah, and that's why we created the Resolve Community, which is an online membership program where we take our thought technology, so this systematic treatment of understanding how you create your perception and your experience, and we apply it specifically to German New Medicine principles and understanding and deconstructing conflicts. And so we're in the second month of the program. Uh, June is self-devaluation month. And so the brand new module was just released. And there's over two and a half hours of webinar training. There is a 70-page note pack, a, um, a workbook journal with journal entry exercises, and a guided meditation. And so every single month, we're doing a deep dive into a conflict and taking it apart piece by piece. Because that's the thing about GNM is it's so amazing. It's so awesome to say, okay, this problem, this issue, these, you know, this pain in my body, it now makes perfect sense, perfect biological sense why it's happening. It's because of a certain type of emotional experience I've been creating for, you know, in some cases, decades. How do I stop doing that? And that, that question, how do I stop doing that? It's not just, oh, well, let it go. Just release it. And mm. just, you know, um, there is a lot more to it because we're very complex creatures. We've got this, you know, complex neurology. Even the releasing, brain... even releasing. What does that mean? I mean yeah. There's a very specific sequence that isn't, I mean, a very specific sequence of kind of conscious or mental maneuvers that, that goes into releasing. You know, it's like, it's like if a person had no ability to, I don't know, like, you know, they have these really cool prosthetic arms now. But, you know, I imagine that, like, these robotic arms, I imagine that when you sort of, you know, put that on someone for the first time, they have to learn how to use it. Right. And if they're holding on to something and you tell that person, well, just release it. It's like, well, you know, okay, how do you do that? Oh, just do calculus. Like, how do you solve this? How do you, how do I build this bridge? Oh, you just do a little calculus. Like, well, great. Okay, that points me in the general direction. But it's like sort of saying, well, how do I get to Los Angeles? You just go head that way. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, that's, that's useful. But, you know, releasing something, accepting something moving on to something new, um, revaluing yourself. These are things that um, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, and some of those ways work a lot better than others. And this kind of having a roadmap is hugely useful because it sort of just sets you in the right direction. And then, I mean, eventually you get to the point where you you improvise, you know, but in order to improvise something, like jazz, like on a saxophone, you know, you have to know certain basic things in order to really improvise well. Mm. You have to learn kind of certain basics. And that's kind of really, I think, where we excel is in sharing with people sort of basic thought technologies that allow a person to yield their consciousness consciously mm -hmm. in a way that really serves them, in a way that really serves you so that you, so that you can like get a handle on this thing and really start thriving instead of just surviving. Instead of like having your mind make a big mess that you then have to cope with and deal with and try to clean up, like actually figuring, it's not about trying harder. It's about doing certain things subtly different than the way that you're doing them now. And once you get those basics down, 
then you go off and really just do your own thing. And then it's a beautiful because you because you know how to do those basic skills, you know, and I think that's really what I think resolve teaches those basic skills and it teaches them in the context of the German New Medicine understanding mm-hmm. of health and healing. And so it goes pretty much like this. Hey, listen, here's some really cool stuff from GNM that says that we're going to talk about this kind of a conflict today, self-devaluation. We're going to talk about conflicts in general. We're going to talk about territorial conflicts. Here's the connection. Here's where it manifests in your body. Now, now that you understand that this physical stuff is occurring as a result of an experience, this, at that point we have, we have finished sharing GNM with you. We step in and say, all right, given the fact that you're, it's this experience that's creating this, this symptom, you know, symptom for you, how do we deconstruct that experience and build a new one? Yeah. How do we actually get you to the point of doing something different? And that's where, that's where the real stuff is. But, you know, because that, cause like GNM really points you in the direction of what you need to do for a specific health outcome. Mm-hmm. Once you get to that place, you've got to know what to do. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, what, that's what we really offer. I mean, that's what the Resolve has really turned into. Yeah, and that's what we're really good at, helping people do, is, to, is getting to that point of having an experience of what it's like to resolve a conflict. And so, you know, because your brain gets really good at what it does. And if it's been doing devaluation for a really long time, it's just gotten really good at it. And so we've got to give you, you know, a systematic way to resolve that conflict and prevent future conflicts. And so that really is the whole vision of what Resolve is all about. People are having amazing results in there already. We do one live workshop a month as well. Um, And so if this is sounding interesting to you, you're definitely going to want to check it out. If you use the code podcast, uh, you'll get $5 off your first month um, of being in the Resolve community. And also, if you are a practitioner, if you are interested in applying this in your practice, whether you're a health coach, a chiropractor, and you just want to know more about our approach and how we help people using GNM, using the thought technology, there's also the Resolve Inner Circle, which is a really wonderful option if you're um, looking, if this is part of your career, if you're a people helper. Mm -hmm. If you're a people helper, you help people you know, get well, feel better. That's definitely um, going to be something that you're going to want to check out as well. So just check the show notes or the uh, box below this video, and you'll be able to find the links to get to the page for uh, just checking out more information about and enrolling in the Resolve community. And I would say too, for, for therapists of any kind, because this is not, it's interesting, it's different in that it's not a technique, right, that you apply to people. So it's like, okay, well, I did this technique what if something about this isn't right and it then causes a problem for them or something like that? It just doesn't work that way because all we're talking about here is a model for understanding things. And so if you're working with someone and they, they're consistently talking about a particular problem that they're having and you begin to recognize, you know what? Oh, from, from what I learned in Resolve, this sounds like this, sounds like this has the flavor of self-devaluation. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to say, okay, now sit in this chair. I'm going to do GNM to you. Or I'm going to do ever better to you. That's not how it works. It's just a framework for understanding and relating to experience, uh, for becoming aware of things that you may be, you never know, like if you don't notice things, if you don't know almost what to do with them, you know what I'm saying? Like it's kind of like the thing like where you notice a car once you're aware of wanting that car or being interested in that car. Like you start seeing it because your brain's like, oh, we have something to do with that. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like it, you notice information when you have something to do with it. Mm. And that's one of the things that's so cool for me in working with people is that I love these different models and these different frameworks. It's just a helper of people because when I'm talking to someone on the phone or when I'm sitting with someone and having a session with them, I'm not saying, listen, I'm about to get ready because here comes some GNM. Here comes some Ever Better. It's coming at you, you know, and so I, I don't care what your problem is. I'm going to shove you 
you into this solution. It doesn't matter. Um, it, I don't do that. I just listen to what they're saying, and I'm listening to what they're saying, and I'm also listening to it in terms of GNM. I'm listening to it in terms of my understanding of the way the mind works. I'm listening to it in terms of a bunch of other models that I've accumulated. And so adding that to your toolbox to increase your perception, increase your sensitivity by giving you a new model for exploring, for charting, for understanding, for navigating the territory of your client, your patient's experience is a hugely useful thing. For navigating your experience of their experience, your understanding of their experience, that's hugely useful. And I think that one of those things to it, sometimes I just feel like I need to emphasize is that like this is, this, this is a tool set. This is a tool that you might find useful. It's a very powerful tool. It's one of those ratchet things that just fits on just about everything. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, I guess my thing is I'm very careful about saying this isn't the only tool that I use, but the more I'm just kind of conscious, the more I find myself going to this one. The mm -hmm. more I find this one really useful, the more surprised I am at how versatile and also powerful it really is. And so I would just say to some, because I imagine that there's someone listening to this, like, I don't really know if this is for me. I don't really, do I have to commit to this? Is there some kind of, I'm already doing, I don't know, I'm already doing gestalt therapy. I'm already doing this or that different thing. And I don't know if this is going to complicate. It fits right into it. It fits right into it because it's pattern level stuff. And there's not like a procedure that you have to follow. It's just things that you pay attention to mm -hmm. and things that you notice. And you say, oh, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Oh, hmm. Is, that, and then is there a connection there between that? It's pattern recognitions, what genius is made of. This is awareness, and awareness in and of itself really is transformative. So, Yeah, so thank you so much for tuning in to the GNM podcast. If you need anything, if you'd like any um, guidance, if you have any questions, feel free to email me at drmelissasell at gmail.com, D-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A-S-E-L-L -S 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 at gmail.com. You can check out drmelissasell.com. And yeah, feel free to reach out. We are here to help in any way that we can. Have a good one. <laughs>